everybody. Welcome back to Reading During Recess. I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah, and I'm a writer. And today we are going to be talking about the children's novel by Kate DiCamillo called Because of Winn-Dixie. Because of Winn-Dixie was published in 2000 and was DiCamillo's first book. And the novel won the Newbery Honor Distinction the year after it was published. Yes, and in 2000, the book won the Josette Frank Award, and in 2003, it won the Mark Twain Award. So it is a very well-regarded book and has been a staple of a lot of middle-grade curriculums since its publication. Unsurprisingly, this book is terrific. I actually felt a little bit silly when I like went back and re- this is probably the second time I've reread it. I read it for the first time as like a I don't know, not long after it came out, probably second or third grader, and then a little bit after that, I probably reread it in like middle school or something. But I was honestly surprised to realize that it was published in 2000 because it just reads so much like a classic somehow. Mm-hmm. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. It feels timeless. It does. Yes, yeah, so it got very good reviews upon its publication. The Horn Book wrote, Quote, the story teeters on the edge of sentimentality and sometimes topples right in, but the characters are so likable, so genuine, it's an easy flaw to forgive. All in all, this is a gentle book about good people coming together to combat loneliness and heartache with a little canine assistance. And Booklist said that while some of the dialogue and the book's life lessons can feel heavy-handed, readers will connect with India's love for her pet and her open-minded, free-spirited efforts to make friends and build a community. But, of course, her name, she doesn't go by India. Yeah, her, her name is Opal. Read uh, the book. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the author, Kate DiCamillo, and then we can move into our plot summary. DiCamillo is an American children's fiction author who's published over 25 novels, including Because of Winn-Dixie, The Tiger Rising, The Tale of Despero, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, The Magician's Elephant, The Mercy Watson series, and Flora and Ulysses. And so many of those um, are just uh, elementary classics. Mm -hmm. The Mercy Watson series is so popular. My kids love it. And of course, I would be really surprised if any listeners hadn't heard of the tale of Despero. Yeah. And the Mirac- have you read The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane? I don't think I have, but now I need to. It's very strange and very good. Yeah. I've I have read a lot of really positive reviews of it in my research mm-hmm. for this episode, so now I'm thinking we gotta do an episode on it. So her books have sold around thirty seven million copies, which is just a staggering number. Four have been developed into films, and two have been adapted into musical settings, including Because of Winn-Dixie, which we can talk about more later. And like we said earlier, her works have won various awards. Kate DiCamillo was born in Philadelphia in 1964, but she moved to Claremont, Florida with her mother when she was five years old. And for the first five years of her life, DiCamillo suffered from chronic pneumonia, so the doctors hoped that a warmer climate would be better for her health. Which seems like a very ye old. I know, right? <laughs> health. It's giving don't go outside with wet hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very ye old. Yeah, that seems like some old timey advice when they're like, well, oh, we don't know. <laughs> her health improved after moving to Florida. It did. So, you know, there's that. And she cites this as a very formative experience, of course, in her life and in her probably the future development as a writer because she spent her very early years 
being chronically sick, spending a lot of time alone and with books. And then she says that when she moved to the South, that was a really important step for her too because of also the separation from her father. So her father never actually moved from Philadelphia to Florida to join the family. And so you see the kind of Jesus Christ reverberations of that abandonment in because of Winn-Dixie and in a lot of her books. And the South and Florida specifically are also a really important kind of cultural backdrop in her stories, places is important to her and the storytelling tradition of the South is something that she's mentioned as being very formative for her. DiCamillo graduated from the University of Florida, uh, Gainesville with a bachelor's degree in English in 1987 and then moved to Minneapolis and worked in a, or worked at a book warehouse in the children's book section. And this was where she started to become familiar with children's literature. So she started writing regularly while she was working at this book warehouse and was waking up before her shifts on weekdays to write. And after four years in Minnesota, DiCamillo met the author Louise Erdrich, who we've talked about before on the show. She wrote The Birch Bark House. She also lives in Minneapolis, and she offered encouragement to DiCamillo, which I love. And DiCamillo submitted her books to several publishers and received, in return, 473 rejection letters. Jesus Christ. What a... <laughs> wow. Especially to know the number. Ouch. Yeah. So the first book to finally be accepted for publication was Because of Win dixie which was published by Candlewick Press. And once she got that first book out and received it received such excellent reviews then she was able to publish many, many more. Good on you, Candlewick. Everyone else is just sickened. They know how big they lost. (laughs) Yes. Shall we move into the plot summary? Let's do it. The novel centers around 10-year-old India Opal Baloney, who goes by Opal, who has just moved to a trailer park in Naomi, Florida. And she lives alone with her father, who she just refers to as the preacher. And we get the sense that her father is loves her very deeply, but is also a very withdrawn and reserved man. She calls him the preacher because that is his profession. And while he is a good father, he is a little bit distant. And for that reason, she views him more as uh, a professional than she sometimes does as a dad. But yes, he is a preacher at the local Baptist church. Yes. Which is a renovated, <laughs> what's it, like a quick pick? Pick it groceries. Quick. Pick it quick, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Opal's mother left her and the preacher when she was very young, and Opal spends a lot of time alone. The only other children in the area are Sweetie Pie Thomas, <laughs> a five-year-old girl, brothers Stevie and Dunlap Dewberry, whom Opal considers enemies, and a pinch-faced girl named Amanda Wilkinson, who Opal views as stuck up. So one afternoon while Opal is doing the grocery shopping, she sees a stray dog just absolutely destroying the local Winn-Dixie store and claims that he's hers to keep him from being taken off to the pound and decides to take him home, where after managing to convince the preacher to let her take him in, she names him Winn-Dixie after the store. And emboldened by her new dog and finally having one friend, albeit a canine friend, Opal (laughs) begins asking the preacher questions about her mother and learning a bit more about her. 
And Winn-Dixie is just like amazing. He's simply the best dog. So I'm just going to give you guys a brief description of Winn-Dixie because I just think he's beautifully described. And in my opinion, possibly the most lovable dog in children's literature. Yeah. This is from their first meeting. And then the dog came running around the corner. He was a big dog and ugly. And he looked like he was having a real good time. His tongue was hanging out and he was wagging his tail. He skidded to a stop and smiled right at me. I had never before in my life seen a dog smile, but that is what he did. He pulled back his lips and showed me all his teeth. Then he wagged his tail so hard that he knocked some oranges off a display. And then when she's outside with him, she says, He was big but skinny. You could see his ribs. And there were bald patches all over him, places where he didn't have any fur at all. Mostly, he looked like a big piece of old brown carpet that had been left out in the rain. <laughs> You're a mess, I told him. I bet you don't belong to anybody. He smiled at me. He did that thing again where he pulled back his lips and showed me his teeth. He smiled so big that it made him sneeze. It was like he was saying, I know I'm a mess. Isn't it funny? It's hard not to immediately fall in love with a dog who has a good sense of humor. Based on the illustration on the cover, I think he's like an Irish wolfhound or something. Yeah, something like that. Would you agree? Yeah. But, oh, I mean, right off the bat, he's just the most lovable. <laughs> he's, he seems very authentic and sweet. Mm-hmm. But he's just an, he's an incredibly affectionate, easygoing dog. And he just quickly endears himself to everyone else in the town. And through Winn-Dixie, Opal quickly befriends Miss Franny Block, who is the local librarian. And who begins sharing stories with Opal and Winn-Dixie. And becomes Opal's first <laughs> human friend in town. Again, yeah. albeit <laughs> several decades her senior Sweetie Pie Thomas, the five-year-old, also befriends Opal because she falls in love with Winn-Dixie and um, invites them both to her sixth birthday party, which is very cute. I love Sweetie Pie Thomas. <laughs> She's an icon. So one night during a storm, Opal and the preacher realize that Winn-Dixie has a violent fear of thunder. It just makes him go berserk. He tears apart the house. He's running past and into them and uh, they realize pretty fast that this fear makes him something of a flight risk and the two of them agree that they're going to need to to keep him safe yes which as an astute reader will realize that means that at some point this dog is getting loose <laughs> he's the gun that's introduced in the first act <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> who's gun Chekhov's yeah yeah Chekhov's yeah. gun D. Camillo's Winn-Dixie. <laughs> a few more syllables, but you know, same principle. So yeah, Winn-Dixie also leads Opal to Otis, who is an employee at a local pet shop. Opal wants to buy a leash and collar, and so she convinces Otis to let her work off the price of the leash and collar at the store because she doesn't have enough money to buy it outright. And he agrees, and Opal arrives at work one morning to find Otis playing guitar for the animals and learns that he spent time in prison after hitting a police officer who tried to take away his guitar. Otis says that he, he likes to let the animals out of their cages and let them kind of just roam around. And as long as he's playing music for them, they remain very calm. And he likes to do that because he says he knows how it feels to be locked up and that it's no good. Um, it's especially sad because we get the sense, I mean, as an adult, I think that Otis is almost certainly on the spectrum. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah. There's there's something going on there. There's some offensive language used by some boys Opal's age, Stevie and uh, Dunlap. 
yeah. to refer to Otis that I'm certainly not going to repeat. But he is viewed as something of an oddball by the town. The scene where he describes his arrest is very sad. It's clear that he he wasn't able to keep himself safe. It's a sad scene. Yeah. And it's very clear that he's not at all a dangerous person. Yeah. Not remotely. But of course, we all know that being incarcerated leaves deep lasting impressions on public perception. Yeah. Uh, later, Opal meets Gloria Dump when Winn-Dixie runs into her backyard. Gloria Dump is a much older woman who Stevie and Dunlap believe to be a witch. And she and Opal strike up a really close friendship very fast. And Opal brings books by to read aloud to her because Gloria's eyesight is seriously deteriorated. And we find out later that Gloria is a recovering alcoholic, similar to Opal's estranged mother. So one afternoon in the library, Franny Block shares the story of her great-grandfather with Opal and Amanda. So Miss Franny Block's great-grandfather fought for the Confederacy as a young boy during the Civil War. I believe he was 14, right, when he enlisted? Yeah, he was young, young. Yeah. His entire family died during the war. And so when he returned after the war, he started a candy factory and invented the Litmus lozenge because his name was Litmus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was his first name. Yeah. And this is a candy that tastes like root beer and strawberry, but somehow includes the taste of melancholy, combining sweetness and sadness. And the conversation leads Opal to learn that Amanda has also lost somebody. So she lost her five-year-old brother last summer when he drowned. And so Opal begins to view Amanda differently and vows to be more understanding because she's now realizing that everybody has their own sorrows. I want so badly to try a litmus lozenge. Me too. It sounds so good. I mean, not the part where you get sad as hell, because I can do that on my own. But like, <laughs> the sweetness part I'm rocking with for sure. Yeah. She brings one back to her father. Uh, she, in fact, she brings one to everyone in town. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, everyone in town who she's met so far. And they all comment on being able to taste the sadness yeah it's really really interesting it's how i learned the word melancholy mm-hmm. i've never forgotten that like that's that's where i learned the word melancholy because her father the preacher describes the flavor as melancholy that's beautiful i learned it from a joke book <laughs> uh, what do you get when you put a cantaloupe on a dog <laughs> <laughs> Or cross a melancholy baby. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I'm not even sure I'm delivering it right. I wish I had your story. Can I? <laughs> you can. Can have I it. have it? You can have it. If you promise <laughs> to never tell that joke again, you can have it. Um, while we're on the topic of melancholy, I just wanted to share the moment when the word is mentioned because I I love which, what Kate D. Camillo writes about it. So this is Opal narrating she says i didn't go to sleep right away i lay there and thought how life was like a litmus lozenge how the sweet and the sad were all mixed up together and how hard it was to separate them out it was confusing daddy i shouted after a minute he opened the door and raised his eyebrows at me what was that word you said that word that meant sad melancholy he said melancholy i repeated i liked the way it sounded like there was music hidden somewhere inside it and I also like the way it sounds. Yeah. I just think about the fucking dog. 
The one who gets crossed with the cantaloupe. Yeah, I remember the one. I also remember you promising <laughs> not to bring it up again. <laughs> I would like to formally apologize to all listeners, but mostly to Sarah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was a beautiful moment and a beautiful line. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) You're welcome. All right. So Opal, for the last, I don't know, couple weeks has been, (laughs) by Franny Block's suggestion, reading Gone with the Wind to Gloria Dump, who is a black woman. (laughs) Interesting choice. My favorite part is when she's like, have you heard of the Civil War? And Gloria Dump's like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my god. Because Gloria can't read read anymore, Opal offers to read her book, and she's like, I would like a book to read to my new friend. And Franny Block is like, <laughs> I have a wonderful book for you. Yeah. <laughs> Franny would. Yeah. As soon as Franny was like, our first introduction to Franny is her saying that she's like an old woman from Florida, right? And she's saying like, my father was a very, very wealthy man. And I was like, oh, no. Uh-oh. I think you come from a long line of slaveholders. So that's Franny. So that's Franny. Uh, so, yeah, she recommends Gone with the Wind, which I would say is, like, not a book that I would expect a 10-year-old to enjoy or an elderly black woman. So Exactly. So that's an F on both counts. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Inspired by the party scene in Gone with the Wind, Opal decides that she wants to throw a party for all her friends in town. Remember that her friends (laughs) include Otis, an adult man, Franny, an old woman, Sweetie Pie Thomas, a five-year-old, and Amanda, who is a girl her age. (laughs) And of course, the preacher is also invited. But uh, anyway, it's all gearing up to be a serious shindig. And Gloria agrees to help her host the party on the condition that she invites the Dunlap boys, uh, who you might remember as being Opal's enemies. They uh, tease her regularly, although the older one... Is the older one Stevie? I don't remember. Oh, I'm sorry. Not the Dunlap boys. The Dewberry boys. Oh. Uh, Dunlap is one of them. But anyway, the older one, the one who is Opal's age, has begun to back off a little bit. But nonetheless, her most recent interaction with them, she called them uh, bald-headed babies, which is a sick burn. Their mom shaved their heads because they had, like, lice or something or fleas. (laughs) So she really got them. So Gloria's like, yeah, but you got to invite them. And Opal's like, fine. (laughs) Uh, Opal and Gloria set up the party outdoors, but a surprise thunderstorm rolls in and forces the group inside. I will say that this is Florida in the summer, so... Oh, yeah. An afternoon... That's kind of on them. Yeah, an afternoon thunderstorm should be accounted for as a strong possibility. Also, Uh, let's talk about the weather in South Florida in the summer, regardless (laughs) of the potential for storms. Complete buffoonery. Yeah, it seems like this party should have been inside from the beginning, but then we wouldn't have had the climactic moment in which when Dixie gets spooked by the thunderstorm, Chekhov's gun fires, bang! (laughs) (laughs) And Dixie, nowhere to be found. Man, it's incredibly stressful. My favorite part, though, is that Sweetie Pie Thomas, I mean, just... This is an amazing scene. Sweetie Pie Thomas, who has been... She's a, a huge party girl. 
my girl sweetie pie <laughs> she just wants to boogie down her own sixth birthday is coming up you might remember because she invited opal to it <laughs> and the theme of that party is pink and when she finds out that she is invited to opal and gloria's party she's like it needs to have a theme and her first suggestion is dogs so she shows up to the party with just like a huge stack of pictures of dogs mm -hmm. um as one does and uh, like pastes them all over the trees and things outside. <laughs> so the storm rolls in and obviously there's panic instantly. Uh, maybe we should go inside, said Amanda. The preacher looked up at the sky and just then the rain came pouring down. Save the sandwiches, Gloria Dump yelled at me. Save the punch. I got my dog pictures, screamed Sweetie Pie. <laughs> she was running around, tearing them off the trees and the chairs. Don't worry, she kept shouting. I got them. <laughs> so they get everything inside and they're you know trying to figure out they're all sort of just decompressing they're they're all completely drenched and figuring out if the food was okay uh and then opal realizes the thunder was really booming and cracking oh no i said i looked around the kitchen don't worry said sweet pie i saved them dog pictures i got them right here <laughs> she waved around her wad of magazine pages <laughs> i love her so sweetie pie breaks the tension somewhat but obviously with Win dixie missing opal immediately panics and runs out to search the town followed by the preacher so the two share an emotional moment in the rain when they talk a bit more about opal's mother and opal is forced to confront the fact that her mother is very unlikely to ever return despite opal's deep deep wishes that her mother will come back Sad it's moment. very sad. The preacher says that they have to quit. I can't believe you're going to give up, I told him. India Opal, the preacher said, rubbing his nose. Don't argue with me. I stood and stared at him. The rain had let up some. It was mostly a drizzle now. It's time to head back, the preacher said. No, I told him. You go ahead and go, but I'm going to keep on looking. Opal, the preacher said in a real soft voice. It's time to give up. You always give up, I shouted. You're always pulling your head inside your stupid old turtle shell. I bet you didn't even go out looking for my mama when she left. I bet you just let her run off, too. Baby, the preacher said, I couldn't stop her. I tried. Don't you think I wanted her to stay, too? Don't you think I miss her every day? He spread his arms out wide and then dropped them to his sides. I tried, he said. I tried. Then he did something I couldn't believe. He started to cry. And it's just a really emotional scene. And it culminates with the really sweet part at the end where he's talking about one of the things that he, he told her when she started to ask questions is that when she left, she took everything. Like, she took all of her things. And he said, but you know what? I just realized something, India Opal. When I told you your mama took everything with her, I forgot one thing. One very important thing that she left behind. What? I asked. You, he said. Thank God your mama left me you. And he hugged me tighter. Oh. I teared up when I reread that. Yeah, it's a beautiful, sad moment. I, I just, it feels so realistic to me, too, that, that these are kind of frustrations that Opal has been building up the entire book with her father, feeling like he's a little emotionally repressed and that she doesn't understand why her mother left. And then finally, in this moment of stress, it, it bubbles over and, and she expresses anger, really, for the first and only time mm -hmm. in the book, except for, I guess, when she's bullying back the dewberry boys but yeah this is mostly 
real anger here. Yeah, there's always been this sort of distance between her and her father where it's obvious that she loves him, but of course she calls him the preacher. You know, she calls, she says yes sir to him, all these things. And it's just a, a really touching moment of connection between the two of them. It's a great catharsis. So eventually they, they turn back together and uh, they return to the house and find that Winn-Dixie has been there the entire time, safely hidden under the bed. Oh my God, I can't believe that like, the entire party knew and none of them was like maybe we should send someone out to try and look for like <laughs> yeah opal because she comes back and she's like we didn't find him and glory's like yeah it's because he was here <laughs> it's like damn <laughs> yeah right that's what i was thinking it was like you couldn't like send someone out to go tell right them? like just shout a little bit down the street like hey guys <laughs> oh my god so the book ends very happily, though, with the whole party singing along together, accompanied by Otis on his guitar. It's very sweet. But I remember being super peeved as a kid. So my copy has all these extra blank pages. Mm -hmm. There's probably, let me count them, one, two, three, four, five, six just blank pages until, you know, the back the back cover, the inside of the back cover that talks a bit about Kate uh, DiCamillo. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being so irritated because I felt like there was all that space they could have used for her mom to come back. And of course, obviously, as an adult, I realized that it's very important that her mother not come back, that that is not the point of the story. But as a kid, I was like, you have got to be shitting me. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I was waiting for her mom to come in and like join the party. I was anticipating a much more like Walt Disney kind of moment. Yeah. But this book is much better than that, of course. But as a kid, boy, did that grind my gears. I remember I turned the page and I was like, but there's all these pages left. <laughs> yeah. And nothing written on them. <laughs> it's, it's funny because when I read this book as a kid, I remember finding it to be so sad. And I remember finding the ending to be really, really upsetting and sad. Mm -hmm. And then I read it again as an adult and I was like, oh. This is a happy book. Like, why do I remember? <laughs> why do I know? I why do I remember it as being so sad? And I think it might be because as a kid, I was really hoping and expecting the mother to come back. Mm hmm. There certainly weren't any Disney movies, or I don't think, I think that was the first book I ever read about a parent leaving by choice. Yeah. You know? And that to me was just such a staggering idea that the notion that the mom wouldn't return being like, sorry, I got lost, you know? <laughs> I kept trying to come back. <laughs> yeah. That she had just, you know, really abandoned Opal and had left nothing behind because she was an alcoholic and didn't want to stay. She was an addict. And that idea was simply too much for me at, you know, eight or nine. Mm -hmm. But of course, now I realize that it's a wonderful ending. And like you said, it's such a happy ending. It's about the happiest you could could possibly hope for. As you may have gathered from the plot summary, this book is quite simple in its plot. The storytelling is more like impressionistic and about character and description and emotional resonance than it is about like a really like a page turning plot. And so I thought we could maybe share a few of our favorite moments that really highlight De Camillo's gifts as a writer. So she has a real great command of metaphor. She describes her father as saying, quote, he sometimes reminded me of a turtle hiding inside its shell and they're thinking about things and not ever sticking his head out into the world. And that is like a recurring 
theme where she talks about when she can see him kind of emotionally retracting. It's like she can see him going back inside his turtle shell. She also, when she talks about her mother, she says, thinking about her was the same as the hole you keep on feeling with your tongue after you lose a tooth. Time after time, my mind kept going to that empty spot, the spot where I felt like she should be. But And then another very important metaphor in the book is the mistake tree that Gloria Dump mm. shows to Opal. So remember, Gloria Dump is the elderly woman, one of the elderly women that Opal has befriended. So Gloria Dump shows Opal this tree after Opal shares with her that she found out that Otis was a criminal. And she asks Gloria, do you think I should be afraid of him? And Gloria says, what for? And Opal says, I don't know, for doing bad things, I guess, for being in jail. Child, said Gloria, let me show you something. She got up out of her chair real slow and took a hold of my arm. Let's the two of us walk all the way back to this yard. Okay, I said. We walked and Winn-Dixie followed right behind us. It was a huge yard and I had never been all the way back in it. When we got to a big old tree, we stopped. Look at this tree, Gloria said. I looked up. There were bottles hanging from just about every branch. There were whiskey bottles and beer bottles and wine bottles, all tied on with a string, and some of them were clanking against each other and making a spooky kind of noise. Me and Winn-Dixie stood and stared at the tree, and the hair on top of his head rose a little bit, and he growled deep in his throat. Gloria Dump pointed a cane at the tree. What do you think about this tree? I don't know, I said. Why are there all those bottles on it? To keep the ghosts away, Gloria said. What ghosts? The ghosts of all the things I'd done wrong. I looked at the bottles on the tree. You did that many things wrong, I asked her. Mm-hmm, said Gloria, more than that. But you're the nicest person I know, I told her. Don't mean I haven't done bad things, she said. There's whiskey bottles on there, I told her. And beer bottles. Child, said Gloria Dump, I know that. I'm the one who put them there. I'm the one who drank what was in them. My mama drank, I whispered. I know it, Gloria Dump said. The preacher says that sometimes she couldn't stop drinking. Mm-hmm, said Gloria again. That's the way it is for some folks. We get started and we can't get stopped. Are you one of those people? Yes, ma'am, I am. But these days I don't drink nothing stronger than coffee. Did the whiskey and beer and wine, did they make you do the bad things that are ghosts now? Some of them, said Gloria Dump. Some of them I would have done anyway, with alcohol or without it, before I learned. Learned what? Learned what is the most important thing. What's that? I asked her. It's different for everyone, she said. You find out on your own. But in the meantime, you got to remember. You can't always judge people by the things they've done. You got to judge them by what they are doing now. You judge Otis by the pretty music he plays and how kind he is to them animals, because that's all you know about him right now. All right? Yes, ma'am, I said. And then, a few moments later, All right, then, said Gloria Dump, and she turned and started walking away. I stayed where I was and studied the tree. I wondered if my mama, wherever she was, had a tree full of bottles, and I wondered if I was a ghost to her, the same way she sometimes seemed like a ghost to me. Such a powerful scene for a children's book. Yeah, that really impact, made a big impact on me as a kid and stuck with me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's one of the only children's books I, I can think of I read that really, like, addressed addiction. Mm-hmm. Same. And recovery. 
also. Recovery most, yeah. I mean, I think I'd seen portrayals of, like, drunkenness and, you know, some kids' books and movies, but not of addiction as a, a disease and then the potential of recovery. Yeah, it was just, it was so powerful to me, too, because I think in media, depictions of alcoholism are so masculine. Yeah. Ooh, that's a really good point. Whenever there's, like, an alcoholic character, I feel like, in children's media, it's almost always a father. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important for me, I think, to realize that this can happen to anybody, that anybody can, can struggle with this. Mothers elderly women like it was so I was so confused and surprised the first time I read this book that the idea that Gloria Dump this kind elderly lonely woman was an alcoholic like that I did I didn't realize that that was a demographic that was affected by this I noticed it more the most recent time I read this book was like the complexity that she allows the characters to have and that very good, kind, lovable people make serious mistakes. I think that's so mm-hmm. important. And the not judging people. You're not a bad person. Well, doesn't mean I haven't done bad things. And, I mean, tied to that, the character of Otis. Yeah. You know, one of the first kids' books I read where someone, you know, someone who had been incarcerated wasn't automatically a villain. The notion that being imprisoned could happen unfairly to someone who was not dangerous. Yeah, and also just like the, just from like a a writing perspective, like the atmospheric image of this big old tree with a bunch of clanking empty bottles on it. It's just a really, it's the scene I think is made so much more resonant by having that physical manifestation of what Gloria Dump is talking about. If this was just a conversation where she said well you know I used to drink too much and now I don't and so don't judge Otis like it would not have had the same yeah because you're right I mean I've the tree is something that I've remembered from this book in all the years it's been since like I've read it Mm -hmm. I've always remembered the tree yeah any other excerpts you wanted to mention oh I like the Franny Block one yeah damn you know that Franny is like probably kind of a the south will rise again type yeah, it's a bummer. <laughs> Her vibes are kind of gross when she talks about the Yankees. <laughs> um, also, did you catch when um, when she asks Opal, she's like, do you know what the Civil War is? And Opal's like, that was the war between the North and the South over slavery. Yes, yes. And she was like, it was about other things. States' rights, too. <laughs> it's like, Franny, what? Franny, come on. Yeah, hang on. Let me try and find that part. It was also about states' rights and money. <laughs> money on what? States' rights to what? Exactly. Okay. Another scene that whenever I would think about this book that I would always remember is Franny's story about her great-grandfather and his experience in the Civil War when he was a young teen. I will say that Franny is 100p a Confederate apologist. <laughs> yeah. And I do not necessarily vibe with her. But she does make one, one good point when she's talking about how... Her Her great-grandfather, who was just 14 at the time, wanted enlisted in the war, um, saying that he, quote, could not stand by and let the South get beat. She says, men and boys always want to fight. They're always looking for a reason to go to war. It is the saddest thing. They have this abiding notion that war is fun, and no history lesson will convince them differently. And then she talks about how he enlisted, and then she says, but he soon found out the truth. Miss Franny closed her eyes and shook her head. What truth, I asked her. 
Why, the war is hell, Miss Franny said with her eyes still closed. Pure hell. Hell's a cuss word, said Amanda. I stole a look at her. Her face was pinched up even more than usual. War, said Miss Franny with her eyes still closed. Should be a cuss word, too. Yeah. So, she, she got that. The um, one other scene I want to talk about is Otis showing up at the party. Oh, of course. My favorite thing about this book is that while it is uh, extremely sad and also beautiful and poetic, it's also, it's just got so many scenes that I laughed out loud when I reread it. I was cackling when Sweetie Pie Thomas was collecting her uh, dog pictures and reassuring the party. But my other favorite part is when Otis shows up at the, the party. So everybody's showing up to the party. Sweetie Pie Thomas shows up with all of her dog pictures and her tape. Franny Block shows up in, like, high heels and a party dress. Damn. <laughs> but so Otis shows up, and they don't hear him coming at first. They just hear the parrot, who often travels with him, Gertrude, screaming that Gertrude is a pretty bird. So Opal goes to... Ch- check and she says and sure enough standing there on the sidewalk was otis he had his guitar on his back and gertrude on his shoulder and in his hands he was holding the biggest jar of pickles i had ever seen in my life otis i said to him come around back that's where the party is oh he said but he didn't move he just stood there holding on to his jar of pickles dog screeched gertrude she flew off of otis's shoulder and landed on winn dixie's head it's all right otis i told him it's just a few people hardly any people at all Oh, said Otis again. He looked around like he was lost. Then he held up the jar of pickles. I brought pickles, he said. I saw him, I said. (laughs) When he meets the preacher. How do you do, said the preacher. He stuck his hand out to Otis. And Otis stood there and shuffled his big jar of pickles back and forth, trying to free up a hand to offer back to the preacher. Finally, he ended up bending over and setting the jar down on the ground. But when he did that, his guitar slid for it and hit him in the head with a little boing sound. <laughs> Sweetie Pie laughed and pointed at him like he was doing the whole thing on purpose just to amuse her. Ouch, said Otis. He stood back up and took the guitar off his shoulder and put it down on the ground next to the pickles. And then he wiped his hand on his pants and stuck it out to the preacher, who took it and said, It sure is a pleasure to shake your hand. Thank you, said Otis. I brought pickles. I noticed, said the preacher. <laughs> yeah sweet otis i love when he gets to play his guitar for all the party guests i know and when gloria tells him i am so glad it just ain't a party without pickles yeah it's a wonderful book it really is so like we said this book is just really beautifully written and i wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about like the writing style and the themes that appear in this book and also in a lot of de camillo's books so I found a article in the Sydney Morning Herald where she talks about kind of her writing process and said, um, not so long ago, DiCamillo tallied up the hours she spent reading versus writing. It was kind of shocking to me. I write for maybe 12 to 15 hours a week and I read for 35 to 40 hours per week. Sometimes when I feel guilty about the reading, I think it's my job to immerse myself in language in that way. 70 to 80% of her reading material is adult literary fiction. The rest is going back and reading the books that moved me so much as a kid and trying to figure out how they did it and keeping up with what's going on in children's literature, which I thought was really interesting because the book to me does read, like you were saying, Terry, kind of like a classic and kind of, Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels very literary. Yeah, absolutely. It really feels like, like it could easily be turned into like a 
if she just scaled up, I guess, some of the complexity of the language, it could it could read as like a literary novella um, mm-hmm. for adults as much as a children's book. I can definitely see, I think, her reading influences in there. Anne Patchett, actually, who's an acclaimed author for adults. Oh, yeah. She wrote a piece in the New York Times in at the end of March of 2020, encouraging people to read Kate DiCamillo's books. You might remember March of 2020 as being terrible, so I think... What? (laughs) So I think it makes sense that she was recommending some kind of literary comfort food. So Anne Patchett wrote in the the New York Times about why everyone, even adults, should try to read Kate DiCamillo's books. She writes, And so I started to read more of Kate's books, until in the end I had read every single one of them. There are a lot, but most have pictures. It was one of the most satisfying literary adventures of my life. It was also incredibly calming, which is why I mention it now. There's something about being able to read an entire book in one sitting that's emotionally very satisfying. Not only are the books beautifully written, the stories have gorgeous arcs. They twist in ways you never see coming and do not shy away from despair or joy or strangeness. They are, each one, sui generis, which Sarah and I looked up and means each its own. Mm -hmm. Each one extraordinary. So maybe you don't have children, or they're not small or not in the house. It doesn't matter. Read them anyway. Maybe you do have children, and you can read these books together as a family. My point is this. Don't miss out. Do not make the mistake I nearly made and fail to read them because you are under the misconception that they are not for you. They are for you. Which has inspired me now. I want to read the rest of her books. Do it. Mercy Watson is definitely a children's series, less Mm -hmm. so than like Edward Tulane, which I think you will definitely enjoy. But it's still a very cute children's series. Cool. Yeah, I definitely... It's great for slightly above grade level first graders yeah i don't know if i've ever read edward tulane i know i read despero i know i loved it but i don't know yes edward tulane is great it's very strange it's it's a good read aloud for bright kids and mm-hmm. i think it also translates very nicely to um to yeah, an adult and patchett says that was the first kate d camilla book she read edward tulane and she said it's one of the most perfect novels she's ever read yeah it's it's a fairy tale and a wonderful one Um, In the Orlando Sentinel in 2019, they wrote, quote, her spare style may look effortless, but it isn't. And then Kate DiCamillo, they quote Kate DiCamillo, who says, I want to make it so that you can see through it, she said. The way to do that is rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it until it's clear, until it's stripped down. If I rewrite enough, I feel like I can make it clear and spare, stripping it away to get to the truth of the thing. With DiCamillo, a lot of writing is between the lines about what's left unsaid. That's where the reader comes in, she said. That leaves the door open for you and me together in the story if I leave those spaces. It's what I'm always trying to figure out about E.B. White, how his words seem to matter more than anybody else's words. He's using the same words we're all using. It must be that stripped away quality. His heart is resting more on each word, and that's what I'm always trying to do. Oh, I love that. His heart is resting more on each word. Yeah, and there's that sparseness really, really works in Winn-Dixie. I mean, the chapters mm-hmm. are so short. There's really no extraneous or unnecessary detail or dialogue. It's very plain and beautiful in mm-hmm. equal measure. There was one other thing about Kate DiCamillo's kind of writing philosophy that I wanted to share. So she published a letter in Time in January of 2018. And so I'll I'll kind of give a little context for the letter. 
So earlier this week, this was from January 12th, 2018. Earlier this week, the author Matt De La Pena wrote about the importance of including the darker sides of life in stories for children. In it, after recalling a time when an elementary school student asked him what he would ask his favorite authors, he wrote that he would like to pose some questions to one he admires, Kate DiCamillo. And the question is this, how honest can an author be with an auditorium full of elementary school kids? How honest should we be with our readers? Is the job of the writer for the very young to tell the truth or preserve innocence? And so DiCamillo shares her response to that question here in this letter. She says, Dear Matt, I read Love and I want you to know that when I turned the page and saw that child hiding under the piano, small, worried, afraid, I felt a wave of recognition. I felt seen. I was a kid who hid under the literal and metaphorical piano. I felt isolated by the secrets and fear in my household. For me, as a kid, to see that picture would have been such a relief. I would have known that I was not alone. I would have felt less ashamed. You asked how honest we, as writers of books for children, should be with our readers, whether it is our job to tell them the truth or preserve their innocence. Here's a question for you. Have you ever asked an auditorium full of kids if they know and love Charlotte's Web? In my experience, almost all of the hands go up. And, you ask, and if you ask them how many of them cried when they read it, most of those hands unabashedly stay aloft. My childhood best friend read Charlotte's Web over and over again as a kid. She would read the last page, turn the book over, and begin again. A few years ago, I asked her why. What was it that made you read and reread that book, I asked her. Did you think that if you read it again, things would turn out differently, better, that Charlotte wouldn't die? No, she said, it wasn't that. I kept reading it not because I wanted it to turn out differently or thought that it would turn out differently, but because I knew for a fact that it wasn't going to turn out differently. I knew that a terrible thing was going to happen, and I also knew that it was going to be okay somehow. I thought that I couldn't bear it, but then when I read it again, it was all so beautiful, and I found out that I could bear it. That was what the story told me. That was what I needed to hear, that I could bear it somehow. So that's the question, I guess, for you and for me and for all of us trying to do the sacred task of telling stories for the young. How do we tell the truth and make the truth bearable? And then she talks a bit about how when she goes to schools, she tells them about her life story and how she was sick all the time as a child and then her father left. And um, she talked to them about persisting. And during the Q&A, a boy asked me if I thought I would have been a writer if I hadn't been sick all the time as a kid and if my father hadn't left. And I said something along the lines of, I think there's a very good chance that I wouldn't be standing in front of you today if those things hadn't happened to me. Later, a girl raised her hand and said, it turns out in the end, you were stronger than you thought you were. When the kids left the auditorium, I stood at the door and talked with them as they walked past. One boy, skinny-legged and blonde hair, grabbed my hand and said, I'm here in South Dakota, and my dad is in California. He flung his free hand out in the direction of California. He said, he's there, and I'm here with my mom, and I thought I might not be okay. But you said today that you're okay, so I think that I will be okay too. What could I do? I tried not to cry. I kept hold of his hand. I looked him in the eye. I said, you will be okay. You are okay. It's just like that other kid said, you're stronger than you know. I felt so connected to the child. I think we both felt seen. My favorite lines of Charlotte's Web, the lines that always make me cry, are toward the end of the book. They go like this. These autumn days will shorten and grow cold. 
The leaves will shake loose from the trees and fall. Christmas will come in the snows of winter. You will live to enjoy the beauty of the frozen world, for you mean a great deal to Zuckerman, and he will not harm you, ever. Winter will pass and the days will lengthen. The ice will melt in the pasture pond. The song sparrow will return and sing. The frogs will awake. The warm wind will blow again. All these sights and sounds and smells will be yours to enjoy, Wilbur, this lovely world, these precious days. I've tried for a long time to figure out how E.B. White did what he did, how he told the truth and made it bearable. And I think that you, with your beautiful book about love, won't be surprised to learn that the only answer I could come up with was love. E.B. White loved the world. And in loving the world, he told the truth about it, its sorrow, its heartbreak, its devastating beauty. He trusted his readers enough to tell them the truth. And with that truth came comfort and a feeling that we were not alone. I think our job is to trust our readers. I think our job is to see and let ourselves be seen. I think our job is to love the world. Hmm. Thank you so much for reading that. That was wonderful. Yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My gosh, her childhood friend is shockingly insightful. Right? Good heavens. Oh my goodness. But yeah, now that we've heard from some very smart adults about what it is that makes Kate the Camillos because of Winn-Dixie so special, maybe it's time we hear from the children. All right, that means it's time for And Now, a word from us kids. Our first review comes from, uh, I believe, Dogo Books and from contributor Lil Nene, who says, This book was sad and funny. When Opal or something, when she asked her dad about her mom, I asked my dad about my mom because this story is almost like my life. Five stars. Sad. I love the or something. Yeah, when Opal or something. What? (laughs) I'm so sad for them. I'm sad that your mom presumably is not a part of your life, but I am glad that if this story is almost like your life, presumably you have other people who are very dear to you. Yes. And who fill that particular gap. I'm sorry for laughing at the inclusion of or something. (laughs) It was just so good and so (laughs) blasé. Do you want to read the next review? Because that one was so short. Sure. Dream underscore beyond says, classic books are the best because they're unique and heartwarming, but not all of them have happy endings. Because of Winn-Dixie? It's a classic. And that's a happy ending, but that doesn't start out happy. Opal's life wasn't a fairy tale where everything was perfect, and in the end, true love waits for you. This is so astute. I love it. (laughs) You see, Opal had no friends where she lived. Her dad was always busy preaching, and her mom left her at an early age. But that all changed when she met Stray Dog, later known as Winn-Dixie. Winn-Dixie doesn't have the looks, but does have a big heart. (laughs) It's because of Winn-Dixie, comma, Opal found friends. It's because of Winn-Dixie, Opal found the courage to ask her dad about her mom. It's because of Winn-Dixie, she isn't lonely anymore. I love this book a lot, and I hope you will too. Five stars. (laughs) It's a very sweet review from Dream underscore Beyond. It really is. Our next review comes from Lunar Three Clips, which I think is actually a great username mm-hmm. and i might steal it this story is about a florida girl named opal and her dog win dixie it is such a charming descriptive story about a girl and her dog it is the story that lasts forever in your heart building a nest in it that is cozy and fuzzy five stars <gasps> oh boy <laughs> i'm shocked that that review is not on the back of the book yeah i think that that's a better review than anything that new york times has ever said yeah 
Pink Kitty Nine says, I really love this book. My class is reading it and I love it. It has a lot of emotion and I cannot put it down. It's kind of sad too, but in a way it is good sorrow. When Dixie seems like a lovable dog, I would really recommend this book. Sure, you're getting it, Pink Kitty. Yeah, I love it because that's kind of an example of what Kate DiCamillo was talking about, right? Kids feel these emotions anyway. Kids, yeah, kids they're lives capable are, of Yeah, kids' lives are sad. experiencing bittersweet emotions. Yeah. So oh, to see goodness. that reflected in the, in the books they're reading, I think is, they can appreciate that. Very true. Would you care to read the next one? <laughs> yeah, this username is a little hard to pronounce. Ha 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 said I thought this book was good but not usually the type of book I would read it has good storytelling but doesn't have a lot of action scenes when I was reading it I felt bored sometimes because nothing excited was happening in that part I like this book because it always had questions running wild in my head it is a book about a girl named Opal that just moved to a new town with her father she feels very alone because she has no friends and her father is spending too much time on his job and not enough on her then she encounters a dog named Winn-Dixie and he changes her life One of the things I most disliked about this book is I felt it took too long to get the climax, and the climax was really the only part with a lot of action and was exciting. The book itself is more intriguing than excited. One of the things I liked about the book was how it always made me guess if something were to happen next or what was happening with a character that made him slash her the way they are. I also liked how they kept teasing the return of a certain character and the result of the tease. All things considered, I would say the good thing outweighs the bad, and it wasn't perfect, so I think a four-star rating is fair. Four stars. <laughs> this is a great review. I know. How old is this kid? I don't know. It's very sophisticated. I love... It is incredibly so. I love the seriousness with which they take their job, so I think a four-star rating is fair. It's fair, yeah. Uh, and I think some of these criticisms are valid. It does take a long time to get to the climax. The climax is really the only part with a lot of action. Mm-hmm. It's certainly like I mean, I mean, we said you know it's it's not a particularly uh, complex plot. There are almost no active scenes. One of the <laughs> one of the only ones is when Dixie catching a mouse and then letting it go unharmed. Yeah, more intriguing than excited. I think that that's a super valid thing to say. Yeah, no, that's a great description i also i think it's so funny that he's like i liked how they kept teasing the return of a certain character and the result of the tease (laughs) because you and i were talking about and a lot of kids mentioned how sad they are that the mom doesn't come back and he's like no he like understands he's like no that's that's the right choice from a literary perspective (laughs) haha juice like gets it This is, I think, one of the best. Re- I mean, it's it's definitely not the funniest review we've ever had. My favorite is still about the kid who basically has experienced the plot of Tuck Everlasting because of his neighbor with all of the little Debbie cakes yes. in the giant truck. That is still my favorite review. But this one is also good. Yeah, it's very astute. But now I think that this is a tremendous review and I think it is fair. Yeah. I think it, it is, is definitely fair. Okay, wait, I love reviewer. Yeah, can you read that one? Yep. Reviewer says, this book is about a girl named Opal. I'm not really a dog person, but my teacher loves this book. I was like, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay is in all caps. It's important you guys Yeah, you need to understand. I also love, I'm not, I love that it's not punctuated. I think that it's very important that not only is it not punctuated, there aren't really like any conjunctions. (laughs) It's just like stream of consciousness. I love it. It reads very defensive. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you want to do the next one? Sure. Artemis122 says, I'm crying because of memory right now. My teacher in third grade read this book to me, and I will never forget it. I'm now in sixth grade. Smiley face, sad face, hashtag bittersweet. <laughs> Once again, you got it. That's like the whole point. Yeah. Smiley face emoji immediately followed by the sad face emoji, I think just really sums it up. Mm-hmm. That's the litmus lozenge. Bittersweet. Hashtag bittersweet. Really disappointed that Kate DiCamillo didn't choose to end the novel with hashtag bittersweet. <laughs> I think that would have like, you know, I kind of wasn't getting the point of the book, if I'm honest. Yeah. Like, I wasn't really sure how to feel. But now I'm like, oh. <laughs> hashtag bittersweet. Oh, my God. True. Uh, the next movie comes from Love Heart Books, he says. I read this book in fourth grade. Well, my teacher read it to me. <laughs> Okay. I appreciate the honesty. Yeah. <laughs> this book is the best book yet in America. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It can still be topped. Because of Windexy is the great American novel. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what every guy in his 20s in a coffee shop is working on? It's been done. <laughs> Pack it up. Put away the laptop. It's over. <laughs> Uh, but the review continues on and is excellent. Then Love Heart Book says, This reminds me of Dixie, my hamster slash guinea pig. Well, a breed mix of hamster and guinea pig. I just, I never know what I can trust in Love Heart Book's reviews. You know, like, did you read it or did your teacher read it? Is it your hamster slash guinea pig or is it a breed mix of hamster and guinea pig? What's the truth? Like, I feel so turned around. Is this even the best book yet in America? <laughs> I'm all mixed up. I, I also, also love that guinea pig is spelled gunny pig. Yeah. <laughs> Goonie pig, yeah. Goonie pig. Um, I also am like, I didn't know that you could breed a hamster with a guinea pig. I do not think that you can. I think that that is a lie. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, boy. I'm so sorry I love hard books. Not to come off as rude, I just don't trust you. <laughs> uh, Keandra23 said, I have chosen to read this book because my friends are always talking about how good the book is, and now I'm ready to read the book. I have heard about the book, and also teachers have told me to read it. So now I'm going to read it, and if it I'm not good, I'm going to read the book. And if it is not that good, I'll be very upset. I'll be upset because everyone is talking about the book. Also, I'm going to love this book. By the cover of this book, I am going to like it very much. And one more reason why I'm going to like it is because I love dogs. And I won't do nothing to harm them. <laughs> I literally cried. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, I was wrong about the Tuck Everlasting review. I was wrong. This one is my favorite. <laughs> this is every book we've read, every review for every book. This one is my favorite. If it is not that good, I will be very upset. I will be upset because everyone is talking about the book. Also, I'm going to love this book. <laughs> so, like, I'm not even going to sweat it. It's a non-issue. If I don't like it, I will be pissed, but I'm not worried about that because I'm pretty sure I'm going to love it. Because I love dogs. And I would do nothing to harm them. <laughs> it's like, what? Was anyone saying you would? Like... It reads us very defensive. I feel like I'm, like, hearing someone's, like, text-to-speech from jail or something. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, boy. And that's it. 
Very good. Frankly, I think we can close out the episode. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Oh, boy. Grace 10 says, this book is so good. It is a commendation of happiness and sadness, too. I think she means combination. I um, like commendation. Yeah. My favorite character is Winn-Dixie and Opal. They are my favorite. This book is great, and I love it. I find that Gloria is a nice person, even if she is kind of blind. I recommend this book. <laughs> what? Oh my god, that is so fucking ableist. <laughs> You're nice for a blind person. I really Damn, god, I was gonna say Gloria is a nice person, even if she has a drinking problem or something. Like... Sarah, that's look, you can't judge people based on their past. You can only judge them based on whether or not they're kind of blind. That's why I'm not a good person. I'm kind of blind. <laughs> Hello, next review. Why have we not talked about how this one comes from <laughs> reader Peaches LaRue, no relation, who says, not a very good book. In my opinion, two stars. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, be honest. Is that your your Dogo I, Books look, account? I'm just trying to emulate uh, Kate DiCamillo's spare writing. <laughs> and I thought that this was not a very good book, in my opinion. Two stars. <laughs> Peaches LaRue. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you that. I'm surprised you haven't already. All right. Next up, we have a review from Mariana Ramirez, who said, I liked the book because it was funny, the first chapter. I did not like the ending because I thought that Opal will see her mother and T will be very happy. I liked the rest of the chapters because they were funny when they told the story about how Otis go to jail. Oh! <laughs> okay. That's incredibly insensitive. That scene is not funny at all. <laughs> I know. Marcos, our final reviewer, says, I think you should read this book because it's fun and sad at the end and people love dogs and animals. And this book talks about a lot of different kinds of animals. So you would like it and keep it forever and ever and ever. And if you like going to the store, then read it. <laughs> huh? <laughs> I guess because in the beginning scene, Opal goes to the Winn-Dixie store. Yeah, so, I guess. So he's like, if you love descriptions of going to a store. Mm -hmm. If you like going to a store, then you'll really see yourself in this work. <laughs> I like that I'm promised that this book talks about a lot of different kinds of animals, which is just simply a lie. <laughs> the dog is the primary driving force in this novel. There is a brief reference to a parrot and an even briefer one to a mouse, and that's about it. Don't forget the bear. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, it, Fine. Does, it, it doesn't Fair talk enough, a Marcos. lot about different kinds of animals. It talks a little. And nor does it talk a lot about going to the store. But No. I sort of thought that at first where Marcus was going with this was that like if, if you like going to the store and you're like going to the store anyway and on the off chance the store is selling a copy of this book, then you can get it and read it. Yeah. But I think, Sarah, you might be right that this book is for store lovers <laughs> because it does uh, briefly reference a store. Yeah. And if you think about it, it is named after a store. Yeah. So there you go. There you have it, folks. What if this book Still was called Because of Publix? <laughs> <laughs> because of Food Lion. <laughs> because because of, of Kroger. Because of Kroger. <laughs> All right. Our next segment is The Book Was Better. So let's talk a bit about adaptations. This book was turned into a 2005 film. The screenplay was written by Joan Singleton and was produced by Trevor Albert and directed by Wayne Wang. 
the cast is absolutely stacked. So we've got mm-hmm. Anna Sophia Robb as Opal, Anna Sophia Robb's first role, or first Huge. major role, I guess. And if you were sentient during the mid 2000s, you know that Anna Sophia Robb had a chokehold on the film <laughs> industry. <laughs> In other classics like Bridge to Terabithia, the American Girl Samantha movie, Need I Go On? I think not. No, you said it. We also have Jeff Daniels as the preacher, Cicely Tyson as Gloria Dump, Dave Matthews as Otis. Shocking. Which I did not know when I was a kid, and then I rewatched it, and I was like, what? I really wanted when he like finally showed up to the party with the pickles for everyone to just like kind of look at each other and like listen and be like, is that Dave Matthews? All right. <laughs> did, did Dave Matthews just show up to this party? This is huge, guys. Dave <laughs> Matthews was in jail. <laughs> um, Eva Marie Saint as Miss Franny and Elle Fanning as Sweetie Pie Thomas, which I did not. Oh, boy. Realize. Oh, my God. That is her. Yeah. So cute. Oh, my gosh. I love Elle Fanning. Me too. So the movie, despite its epic cast, received kind of mixed reviews. It has a 55% on Rotten Tomatoes. Richard Propes, the independent critic, wrote, It is a simple film and a simple story, yet beautifully told and acted. In a world where action and special effects can often reign supreme, ever so often it's nice to see a film come along that warms the heart, inspires hope, and creates characters that make you smile. Because of Winn-Dixie, I smiled a lot. So he actually really liked the film. It was a sweet review. The film was less popular with Harry Hahn of Film Journal International, who said it was a cloying family entertainment filmed to the bubbling brim with goody-goody intentions and somehow managing to deliver on none of them. Damn. Rough. (laughs) Yeah. Richard Roper of Ebert and Roper said, if they let the dog go, I think we'd have a better movie. (laughs) damn succinct that's that kind of spare writing that i love yeah and you know i do love dogs and i would also do nothing to harm them um that's a huge relief yeah but i do kind of agree that in the film the dog is kind of (laughs) unnecessary he's not unnecessary he's a plot device from the trailer he looked pretty annoying too it's just all kids movies in the early 2000s that featured dogs the dog's they just, they had to burp. They had to tear things to pieces. There was no charm. Yeah. It's giving like Beethoven, you know? Yeah. A giant hog dog. <laughs> no, you're, always, you're totally right. That was my, I like, am. That was my critique of the way that the Winn-Dixie is handled in the movie. He's really annoying. He was obviously there for comic relief um, more than anything, and I think maybe kids would enjoy it. Yeah, he was just kind of obnoxious and wasn't, like, lovable or endearing or he didn't have, like, the heart that yep. you see in the book. I am with you, 100P. Kit Bowen from Hollywood.com said, like a big glass of milk and a slice of apple pie because of when Dixie is just as wholesome as it gets if you don't mind overdosing on the sugar once in a while. So yeah, I mean, I would kind of agree with these reviewers. I would say the movie is fine. I would say it's not bad, but it's not particularly good either. It's cornier and relies more on tropes than the book does. So the plot feels a little more hackneyed, like 
For example, mm-hmm. one of the, like, the main conflicts in the movie is that the trailer park where Opal and her dad live doesn't allow pets. And there's like this mean old man who runs the trailer park. And he's like, you got to get that dog out of here by the end of the summer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And it just feels like we have uh, already seen this movie. Right. Like it's the book doesn't have a villain. It doesn't need one. But the movie does have one and then of course the villain is like neutralized by when dixie's charm and the trailer park man comes to the party and is like that dog can stay as long as he needs to oh yeah the way that the movie kind of talks about the town it plays up this idea that opal is this sort of like pollyanna figure who comes in and makes everybody happy which isn't really how the book is like you do get the sense that opal brings joy to these people but she's getting just as much as she's giving and it's and opal comes off in the book as a pretty real kid yes you know she's not like overwhelmingly precious or anything yeah she's you know she calls two kids bald-headed babies yeah it's great yeah you get the impression that she'd have been any closer she would have swung yes yeah, so the book, that's a good way to describe it. Anna Sophia Robb in the movie is very precious. And I mean, she's adorable. And I think I don't want to like criticize a child, but it's like, <laughs> it's definitely child acting with a capital C, where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, extremely expressive, extremely earnest. She's put on this big southern accent that sounds kind of fake. And she's just she's just too sweet i guess and so she comes in the town and the town is all kind of lonely and disconnected it kind of plays up the plot line of the candy factory that litmus of the litmus lozenges that when the candy factory shut down everyone in town lost their jobs and then people lost their connections to each other and stopped sharing each other's sorrows and sharing okay. each other's joys and it's like oh okay And so it just feels like more cliche, I guess. And then Opal comes in with her obnoxious dog and invites everyone to a party. (laughs) And even gets the mean old trailer park man to smile. I would say, like, the book kind of has an edge to it. And, you know, it talks about difficult topics, incarceration, alcoholism, loneliness, abandonment, that kind of keeps you from overdosing on the sweetness and Mm -hmm. for some reason the movie really leans into the sweetness and it still talks about those issues so i'm not sure exactly what the problem is it's a little goofier there's like multiple scenes that are classics of the genre where when dixie he like attacks a police officer and pulls down his pants yeah catches a baseball that got thrown really high yeah it's enough but i will say that it is nice to have a piece of children's like realistic fiction adapted for the screen because most film adaptations of children's books uh, focus on fantasy or sci-fi it's kind of unusual for a book with as simple as of a plot as when dixie to get adapted for the screen i would agree so that's nice yeah so the movie is kind of disappointing but not terrible there is also a 2019 musical adaptation of because of when dixie which i have not seen but i have watched some clips of it online and it got kind of pretty okay reviews. The Playbill website describes it as having a book and lyrics by Nell Benjamin of Mean Girls and Legally Blonde and music by Tony winner Duncan Sheik of Spring Awakening and Alice by Heart. 
The musical is set in a southern town filled with lost souls. However, a new leash on life is just around the corner when a preacher and his daughter take in a mutt named Winn-Dixie. So the New York Stage Review by Bob Verini says, quote, both Joan Singleton's screenplay and now Nell Benjamin's libretto strain to graft a spine onto DiCamillo's impressionistic, largely event-free pastoral in which our canine hero touches each town person in wispy encounters, each teasing out a more a moral suitable to a Newberry honoree. In that spirit, Act 1 dawdles along while Act 2 feels suddenly overstuffed with storylines and lessons. Four out of five stars. Uh, I appreciated that review because I think it addresses one of the kind of primary issues that adaptations have, which is that, like he says, DiCamillo's book is largely impressionistic and kind of event-free. And so Mm -hmm. turning that into a dramatic film or musical is a challenge. So yeah, the musical looked kind of irritating to me, but... I'm also prone to being irritated by musicals, so I don't know how. <laughs> That's a good point. How good of You're a not judge wrong. I am. But I mean, it got fairly decent reviews. So if you like musicals, if you like Because of Winn-Dixie, if you like children singing, then go see this musical. You might love it. So with that said, why don't we move into our final segment? It's time to rate this book. Ah, I'm so excited. Yeah. All right, Sarah, what say you to rating this book out of Jars of Pickles? Ah, love it. (laughs) All right, I'm going to be honest. This is one of my favorite books of all time. I'm going to give this book 10 out of 10 Jars of Pickles. Yeah, this is easy for me, too. It's 10 out of 10 Jars of Pickles, for sure. Yeah, love this book. Done and done. Before we sign off, do you want to tell them where they can find us? Yeah, so thank you all for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe. And feel free to get in touch with us at reading underscore recess on Instagram or Twitter. We love hearing from you guys. You can also email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. And all you bald-headed babies out there, stay reading.